Hey, this is Kale with Zero Tolerance Gluten-Free Homebrew Club, and I have Bob Kiefer joining us today from Divine Science. Thank you for joining us, Bob. What's up? So uh, Bob is a great friend of the club, and uh, just uh, first question starting off. Well, first of all, your, back, your background is way nicer than mine. Uh, do I need to step up my, uh, my background game here? <laughs> How do you what's that? What, what, what sort of background are we talking about? <laughs> Your, uh, your, your, your flower. So beautiful. <laughs> hey, yeah. well, you know, it's nice. It, it's the best lighting in the room. If I were to sit against the other thing, that's a nice enough backdrop. I usually get like, it's just a silhouette. Yeah. So yeah, yeah we also needed to, um, we're living in a one bedroom apartment, so we needed to create space, uh, separate, separate spaces or else it's actually really hard to focus on getting in, in anything done. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Understood. So especially like still holding a day job right now, it's really important to make sure that I'm not screwing around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So how um, I I was looking at your website and it seems like you've been at this for a while. What got you started brewing in general as a home brewer, and how long ago did you start doing that? And have you always been brewing gluten free beer? I'd say about a year or a year and a half before the club really started. I had started to do like batches here and there, you know, uh, whether that be to have beer, have my own beer at the, at a music festival that I was going to, or, you know, somebody's birthday party or whatever, that sort of thing. Cause one of the biggest things about, and anybody that's gluten free knows is that, you know, first of all, there's very few options unless you bring your own. It's not like somebody's going to have an extra six pack lying around. That's like, Hey, we thought of you before you were coming <laughs> over and we got you this free beer. So now it can happen, and that's we're trying to, uh, you know, take back, uh, take back our social lives, one flavor of beer at a time, if you will. There. <laughs> yeah, I definitely hear that. I mean, I, um, I think that in the Pacific Northwest, where I am, I've actually got it kind of lucky. But most areas of the country, it's kind of a wasteland. And surprisingly, you're in California, right? And you would yep. think California would be. Uh, kind of health conscious, uh, big into gluten-free and already have, uh, you know, gluten-free breweries out there, but it seems like there's really a kind of a wasteland when it comes to that, even in California, right? For sure. I mean, I think we're trying to really, uh, you know, go to market hard and, you know, the fact that we're in health food stores as well as Total Wine and now BevMo, I think that really positions us well to be able to bring that, you know, good gluten-free beer to the market. The only other real, other gluten-free that, that's pervasive in California is Glutenberg. So, you know, they've got almost, I want to say eight flavors now. And for me, I was, you know, sitting as a home brewer going, if they can do eight flavors, I can do at least one. And right. so that was kind of the motivating factor. I felt like if I was, if, if I didn't act now, I would be the second gluten-free beer in Southern California. And so I, I felt like it was the right time. And also, you know, just stuff started to kind of happen. I think a lot of it was spurned upon by my entering of contests, you know, before the club really got going. Um, that was my only way of feedback really previously. And it wasn't necessarily the best feedback. Like you'd be in the alternative grain category and they'd be like, well, why'd you use rice? Why'd you use corn? <laughs> I don't know. It's the alternative grain category. What else am I going to use? So, uh, but it was really interesting. You know, I, I ended up actually 
kind of getting fed up with the alternative grain category because it was hard to get appropriate feedback. So I just started entering it into regular competitions. And then you kind of start learning like, oh, okay, the reason why they're not liking this beer is because this ingredient, or I didn't treat this ingredient the right way, or maybe I added too much sugar on that recipe. You know, there's various different ways that you can dial it in. And it's actually good to be testing it against the barley-based palate, especially a lot of these folks that are BJCP trained. You actually get really honest and good feedback. They think it's barley, and they're confused a lot of times because of it. But the feedback you get, it still is good to have that frame of reference because that is what is so ubiquitously known as the flavor of beer. So I think one of the things that's the weirdest but happiest com uh, comment that we get about our beer from various servers or other, you know, people that aren't gluten-free is they go, it just tastes like a regular IPA. I don't know what the big deal is. A you lot know? of people, yeah, and a lot of people's expectations when it comes, when you say the word gluten, when you say the phrase gluten-free beer, uh, a lot of people have an image of maybe some of the beers that were maybe out on the market first, which, you know, maybe a long time ago, those would be, you taste that and you'd say, uh, this doesn't taste very good, right? But it's way different now than it was maybe yeah. 10 years ago, five or 10 years ago, right? Well, I really wonder how many people have actually tried these yeah. very early on flavors, truly. I think one of the things, if I'm being entirely honest, when people think gluten-free, they think of a beer glass that's empty. Right. And they go, well, I mean, how do you get drunk off that? I mean, there's nothing in there. Gluten-free? <laughs> you're just drinking air? What is this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that's one of the biggest things is that, you know, a lot of people don't even know what gluten is, you know, and that's not their own fault, but it's not necessarily something that you think about unless you start having an upset tummy all the time, you know? Yeah, you start for sure. forums, you start looking around, you start doing things like elimination diets and that's how more and more people are coming to this lifestyle. It's really not a fad. It's, you know, it's funny to me because whenever people say, oh, wow, you, you, know, you seem to be really well positioned to take advantage of this fad of gluten-free. And I, I just stop and I like laugh, like <laughs> bad. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, like, yeah, for sure. To like literally go from, you know, being able to pick up any food and throw it in my mouth unwittingly to now having to read the label on every single thing that I come in contact with. It's a, it's for some people it's earth shattering. For me, it was like, well, let's have some fun with this. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, my, my now wife, she started a baking company before we did the brewing company we were doing the vegan festival circuit. We got the pie into grocery stores. Uh, you know, and really when I say we, it was my idea for her to quit her job and start the business, right? That's most of the weave that really went down. And, but through the work that I helped her out with in various elements like baking and in the kitchen and process improvement and things like that, you know, you really gain an understanding of what it takes to actually start a business. Not only that, but how to do it, a gluten-free business and do it right. So that was kind of the, that was kind of the thing that was like, well, if she can do that with pie, What's stopping me from doing beer? Right. So, and, uh, tell us, tell us a little bit about Divine Science. Um, what I always like to um, have uh, folks answer is, you know, where'd the name come from? First of all, uh, the name was there a lot of thought that you you put into the name? Uh, did you toss around a ton of ideas before you you landed on that one? Well, it's interesting. You know, it's I wanted. 
so Beerly had it easy. Let's let's all just call it what it is, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he told me it only took him like one second to figure out his name, right? So no, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was trying to figure out. Okay, well, I want to make my mark. You know, I don't want to force, or not necessarily force, but I don't. You know, so my dad has a company that's called Key for Professional Search, right? And I'm considered the prodigal son in the family because I haven't taken up the helm. And so I was like, should it, should I do Kiefer Brewing or Bob's Brew House or whatever? I mean, there if you've driven on up to Bellingham in Washington, there's a Bob's beer and burgers. And I was like, ah, it seems so derivative to just do Bob. Um, and then I was thinking about how one of the reasons why I'm doing this or doing you know started doing this was you know because of my wife, right? And I want I was like, okay, well, how do I represent? femme fatale, badass female, you know, something that, you know, goes deeper than just femme fatale. Cause you know, then you're just like, I'm just girl of the month beer club. You know, I don't, I didn't want to do that. Right. And so there was this element of, uh, when you, when I think of the divine feminine, that is what is femme fatale for me. Right. So I think that's a lot of what the word divine comes from. And then also, you know, you're, when you think about beer, Previous to like the 1800s, before we had microscopes, we literally thought it was God making it. So that's, there's this timelessness and uh, divinity of beer, right? I mean, beer itself was safe drinking water. I mean, you right, couldn't drink right. stuff coming out of the lake or the river. So you basically had to do something and, you know, you wanted to make it taste good. <laughs> you didn't want it to just be passable. And I think that's where you started seeing quality and things like beer going from sour beers to the now macro style beers that we all enjoy nowadays and so i think there was that element and then when you think about the fact that we now have such a deeper understanding of what is happening in our beer and all the different chemical compounds that are coming from it and you know when you look at gluten-free there really is so much science that you have to apply to this you know so much science that you really can't even do the same things that barley brewers do it just doesn't work the same and in fact you're going to end up with a much inferior product if you do the same things as barley brewer in many cases um i i um i'm looking at some on your website you have some of the cans of uh divine science the uh event horizon the blonde and then the third contact and the artwork is pretty fantastic on those so tell me a little bit about the yeah. artwork uh where'd that come from and the inspiration behind that so I hosted a musical in 20, a music festival in 2016. And um, we had various different DJs and- uh, It wasn't called the Fire Festival, was it? No, no it was called the Apology. <laughs> um, right? Worst Coachella ever. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, you know, that was, it, was, it was a really fun experience. You know, it brought a lot of my friends together, some new friends, specifically uh, a painter named Tony, Tony Cole, uh, K-O-E-H-L, for those that are interested. He um, does all different kinds of artwork from leather to uh, live paintings, you know, oil, acrylic, all sorts of different designs. And he also, uh, when, I started, you know, obviously I connected with him. We were then friends on Facebook after the Apollo gathering. And I started to see a lot of his work over the years, primarily in the death metal space. So he does album covers and, uh, you know, LP uh, okay. cover yeah. logos for death metal bands. And I was like, just in my head, uh, you know, when I was thinking about how we wanted to create the logo and what we wanted to go to market as, 
he was the he was he was basically the only option really is just like i want to see what his brain does with my image of the divine feminine because i didn't want it to be too uh you know one direct one dimensional i think one of, the, one of the things that's cool about the way that he creates the art is that he's able to represent so many aspects of of the divine feminine the good and the bad and the you know the 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 beautiful and the ugly and it it's it's so well juxtaposed that it just really makes the concept of divine science come to life and it's uh it's brought me to tears a couple times to be honest with you uh not only just the feedback that we get from our our logo but just the impact that an artist's vision can have on your brand and uh i mean we we use him for every single one of our logos i'm i'm, I'm even more excited i would say about our um about our stout logo i mean it's it's what you know it's with that you know it's i wouldn't necessarily say third time to charm per se i mean sometimes you know when you look at our ipa level sometimes people just get it right on the first go but you know you explain a concept that it's almost tough to put in words really and then he's able to visualize where your head's at and then create something that's just utterly magic like this is the label for our stout Oh, that's a perfect segue. So you have the blonde and the IPA. And so tell us about this. Um, this stout looks like it's a new um, uh, new style that you're going to release here pretty soon. And we just got a sneak peek of it. That's awesome. So when's that going to be out in the stores? <laughs> well, um, we've got the holiday looming. Uh, we obviously wanted to get into stores before then. It takes a, It takes a second. But basically, it'll be approved probably sometime early next week. And then we'll start getting POs and those will be in the rotation in California by at least mid July. Cool. Cool. Um, so one of the big reasons I wanted to get to talk to you is because you do something that's a little bit different than the other brewers that I've talked to so far. It's called contract brewing, right? So uh, tell us about contract brewing. What is that kind of, I think everyone kind of knows the basics of it. And then what are the positives about that? And then what are the not so positives about that? Uh, well, uh, contract brewing is a great way to put a brand on the market and start getting feedback quickly, uh, which allows you to really dial in recipes before you get into a larger space. The, uh, the pros are pretty much that, that you don't have to go through as many coops. You don't have to build from the ground up. You don't have to install a brew house. You don't have to you know, dig trench drains and epoxy your floor. You know, you, there's a lot of things you don't have to do because you're walking into a brewery that's already established most times. Uh, and so that's probably the main benefit. And that's what really helped us get off the ground. It was, it was great that we've been able to work with the people that we've worked with thus far. Um, some have been more longer term than others. Um, and some are, you know, quick one pops when you can't get your beer scheduled, which is a big downside of contract brewing is that you really don't have control over the schedule because you're just another brand that they're contract brewing. Um, the other downside is, uh, and this is a not so positive aspect of the barley beer industry, but most people view their mash ton as what they call pre-boil, which means that they actually never clean it, to be honest with you. They actually never clean it, many breweries. Um, and it's disgusting and it's sad, and it's the, it's a, but it's a fact, right? And so... Um, you know, we have to spend a good hour or two hours or however long it takes to make those tanks look like brand new before we use them. Uh, so that means involved, that involves taking the false bottom out that involves not, you know, running caustic acid 
sandy, every single thing that you can possibly find to denature this stuff, scraping it down to where it literally looks like new stainless steel. Uh, and so, but you know, that's one of the things that, that is nice is that a lot of these contract brewers will give you that ability to do that. There's contract brewers that have said, no, we don't clean the mash tun. You're not allowed to use, we're not going to take you on because of that. Wow. So then the segue to that, uh, contract brewing, right, is, um, getting your own space. Are you looking to move into your own space in the future and, um, yeah. and not have to do all of this? I mean, you must be an extra expert at cleaning mash tuns by now, right? You're probably sick of it. Oh yeah. And you get stuff like, uh, the other, this last weekend we cleaned a mash tun and Dominique got a rash on her elbow, uh, from where she had touched the, uh, grates on the, um, you know, mash tun while she was scrubbing it. Uh, it was really interesting. It was like looking at a child who had just gotten the scratch test with the, uh, you know, the immunotherapy doctor where you see like a little like flare up, you know what I mean? On the skin. It was crazy. And, you know, right. we take it for granted because we don't, I know I haven't really knowingly touched gluten in a decade. And so um, you really, you forget what the reaction looks like. And you're yeah. like, yeah, weird. Or this is real. Really. This is why we do it. You know, is that, it's not just a bad. It's not a joke. It's not some person that you want to label as a Karen complaining. No, it's these people are dealing with some severe pain and you might be too. And the fact that you're calling them out so hard is probably an indicator that you have gluten intolerance because you're so brain fog that you can't realize that you should just allow someone to live their own life. um off my soapbox now <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so let's uh let's let's talk about um you you have this contract brewing situation but you obviously also want to like test out um brews before you scale them up right so yeah how do you do that um and in addition to that question um when you're doing those test batches are you thinking about how you're going to scale up and how it's going to work on a larger scale once you take it into do a contract brew. Yeah, I mean that's why I'm still an avid home brewer is that there's still recipes that I think need formulate uh, further formulation and and cuz like you know you like say take our blonde recipe, you know the the home brew recipe for that called for like uh what I would say maybe like 9 or 10 pounds of grain, uh two and a half pounds of which were yellow corn. And when you take that same quantity and you try to throw it into a large batch, it really just tastes like it's corn. And so you, when you're trying to create a balance, you have to sometimes dial stuff back that you, you wouldn't expect. Um, you know, it's an interesting element. Like we had actually planned to do this stout as a pilot batch for our anniversary and do it as an imperial style. So I actually had a various texturing of grains that went into this recipe. But as you can see, it's not as dark as your average stout. Uh, yeah, and that yeah. really didn't have as many dark grains as we probably, you know, could have. Right. So I last minute I was able to get an order from Eckert for, you know, some of his darker malts, which I really think helped us get to where we need to be. But that's another reason why I wanted to add more elements of things like coffee and chocolate into the recipe. So we added cacao nibs as well as cold brew coffee concentrate in secondary to this beer to really help it really encapsulate that. Uh, flavor profile that we're going for with the name, which is Mocha Diosa, which means, you know, basically Mocha Goddess. And so, yeah, that's the whole concept is that, you know, 
a lot of people say, and I, and they'll even tell you this when you go to the Guinness factory that Guinness itself, modern day Guinness, is a red red style ale uh, as much as it is a stout. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, and that beer, just um, from an ABV perspective, what is it? You know, in the fives or? Yeah, four point eight. Four point eight. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um. What about from a technical perspective, we want to get your take on a couple of things that are hot topics with the club. Um, those are mashing and enzymes, right? So we talk about this stuff all the time. So for yep. you, right, when you scale these recipes up, I know on a, like, I, I'm, you, you do a lot of batches, um, pilot batches in the grandfather, right? So you have a lot of temperature control within that. So yeah. do you have that but same I temperature control in uh, the brewers you go to? And do you do like uh, rising, falling? What kind of mash regimes do you usually do? And another question on top of that, is your mash regimes based on the beer you're brewing? Or is it just you stick to one thing every time? Uh, well, you know, I, you have to go for what works. That's number one. Uh, number two is that it just so happened that right when we were coming to our new contract brewer, I, um, my, uh, temperature controller actually broke on my grandfather. I, I, I need to get it replaced. It's just been kind of interesting to, to put that limitation on my brew days because that's the same brew, you know, limitations that I deal with in barley brew houses. One of the things that became really popular about five years ago, I want to say, is this concept called the Insta Hot, and uh, works great for barley because you know, like it, it usually gets up to about a one eighty five, and uh, that's great for millet, but it's not necessarily great for rice in my experience um, because you have to do a longer mash that way. So my whole concept is, I don't want to be here all day. I've got things to do and a life to live, and I'm not going to spend sixteen hours. To 20 hours trying to make one beer and that's when you that's what you start learning when you work with which is for the most part been our experience two vessel brew houses um and they do two vessel with insta hot because barley really they're resting it for like 20 minutes and then sparging it and sending it off to boil right we don't have those same um you know ex, you know in uh, uh, um what a we don't have those same internal enzymes in our grains, right? So that, that, that becomes a consideration, you know what I mean? Like if I had, you know, a steam injected mash ton, I might not even add enzymes, right? Because you can do your quick rest, boom, second rest, third rest, drain the liquid out, steam inject it till you hit a high enough temperature to fully gelatinize and, you know, liquefy those enzymes, add that water back, boom. You know what I mean? Perfect rendition of an Ed Golden recipe. But almost any brewery that's going to be able to take you on is not going to have that capability. Um, I think if you had, if we had an HLT, it would, I think it would make a lot of difference. And that's really one of the goals that we have is to do at least a three vessel brew house when we, when we build our own brew house. Um, because I want to strike at a very high temperature that a lot of people are actually made very uncomfortable by, which is 205 is typically my strike temperature with rice. And the reason being is that rice will cook at 190 within 20 to 30 minutes. So you can get that first rest done quickly while you're precipitating your temperature. And heck, you can even start adding your millet at that temperature too, because that will further precipitate your temperature, uh, which allows you to get a quicker mash in. I don't do, I don't intentionally set out to do four hour mashes. The way that the temperature tends to fall, however, in a large vessel brew house is that it'll take a while because you've got a lot of volume. Um, and so you'll probably end up doing a four hour mash anyways, 
but I'm yeah. not setting out to do that. I want to cook the grains with the turmamel as, as I'm precipitating the temperature. The moment I hit 155, secondary enzyme, which is for us, Saxime Pro 1.5X. Um, so we don't use CBAML, but we, we use a, 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 compar a comparable enzyme. That enzyme's optimal temperature is between 150 and 155. And so that allows us to do everything that we need to do relatively quickly. Um, we also do something that I learned from Ghostfish, which is we Vorloff the entire time, uh, the entire mash. And also I get about 19 to up to 30% higher efficiency with mash rakes. So I, I, you know, that's pretty much almost a prerequisite now to own a gluten-free brew house is to have mash rakes or something that's fully incorporating those enzymes into the grains as you're mashing them. Are you using some sort of, do they use some sort of rims tube set up in the Vorloff for those? Or are they, um, are they, how are they temperature controlling uh, during that process? Or are you just well, falling I, the whole time? Are you just falling the I, whole time? I'd rather just fall the whole time and then add hot water that's at like 185 for sparge and then head off to boil. Uh, just because it's not, because most of these mash tons are not direct source heat or steam injected. And because of that, you can't do step mashes, uh, like vertical step mashes. You have to do falling step mashes typically. What about um, any experimentation with like uh, Ondia Pro or the Ceramex Flex? Those are kind of big uh, club items that we see out there these days. Are you experimented with those enzymes at all? Yeah, I've considered for sure. I think that, you know, maybe when we make uh, the next rendition of stout, I think an Ondia may help for that recipe. Um, the other recipes, we're getting close to 99% uh, efficiency on our grains. And uh, I think both our blonde and our, and our IPA want to be dry. So I don't mind using what we have and making it fermentable. Like our IPA routinely starting gravity is in like the 1055 to 1058 range because we go high gravity and then we actually dilute. And... Um, I finish almost every single time at 007. And so I'm getting like oh, a wow. 6.7, 6.8 6 IPA every single time um, just by doing that. Uh, just by having it, having the intention to be making a drier IPA. And that's, you know, you set out to make it, you make it, you make it well. And that's, that's one of the things that I, I, I believe that's one of the reasons why our IPA still outsells the blonde, even though it's more expensive. So um, for, uh, I asked this question to JP, so I'll throw it to you too. So um, if you had um, one piece of equipment that you could not live without during your brew day, be it, you know, on a homebrew scale or even when you're talking about doing this contract brewing, what, is there one or two things that you just cannot live without um, that really, or just make your life a lot easier in the brew day? That's a really good question. Um, I think that you have to, I think one of the biggest tools that you have to use is your head because you're always going to have some hiccup that happens. Like for, for instance, we found that in the summer, our, our falling mash is even less effective because of that element that it's hot outside and our contract brewers in the desert in California and Riverside. So it's like a hundred degrees outside. And so what we started doing is we actually were able to figure out a way to put the cold water hose, have it run as like, like we'd have it spray down the length of the recirc arm. And we were able to bring our temperature down where it was taking us an hour, two hours, 30 minutes to precipitate nice. the temperature nice. by creating 
a reverse flow chiller through our research. So like, nice. yeah, you need to have a con like a, a, a very level head. I think too many times I see brewers getting drunk on the job and um, it's, it, it doesn't allow you to be sharp. You have to be on it, right? Otherwise you're like, why is it so dark? Damn, it's 2 a.m. and I'm still not even at boil. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, you, you, were, you were saying the other day you were like dumping like t- uh, bags of sugar into your your grandfather. Because, you know, there's I mean, I'm sure when you're at these different places in contract brewing, you, you have situations where you're like, oh, shit, I got to fix this. Or, yeah. oh, shit, I'm going to be here for 10 hours waiting for this mash to fall. I got to figure this out now. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that was one of the, <laughs> what a brew day, man. That was crazy because we, it looked really good in the mash. I was like, okay, cool. We're hitting most of our targets, even though we don't have stir rakes in this mash time. Um, you know, going to boil, everything looks pretty good. I t- took a lot of the, the post runnings though, because I like to do that at home and because you still have like 10, 10, 10, 20, the like sugar content in there and it's better than 100% dilution. What I didn't realize is that I had added almost a hundred gallons to this from the runoff. And so I had already started diluting it. And then I went to go dilute it again. And we ended up close to like 20 barrels because we put it into a 20 barrel tank. We were only supposed to go 15 barrels in. And then we're like, oh no, that's a little high. Uh oh. And then we check the gravity and it's like way lower than it should. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, oh no it's like 9 30 p.m and we started at 7 30 a.m oh no and so we're like okay hurry let's think okay we've got a grain father let's go get it you know fill it up with five gallons of sugar dump 50 pound bags of sugar until we get to the gravity that we need and just get it up to temperature you know grandfather did its job we also were able to research the we were also able to, to jimmy rig a hose into the outflow inflow and then have it go into the drain. But we had the grandfather up on like a 20, 30 foot ladder because um, the, the hose isn't long enough to reach into the top of the tank from the ground. <laughs> so yeah. That sounds dangerous. <laughs> you had a Jimmy Rick stuff. Oh, well, you know, we're owners. So OSHA doesn't apply to us, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just think of stuff and you got to do it. And otherwise you're like, uh, are we creating a new label for a session IPA? What do we do? It's got the same right. hop. Like, how am I going to really pass that off? Like, I'm not going to do that. And so you've got to, you've got to think on your feet and you've got to be ready to go. And, uh, you know, that's the, that's, that's the, a weird way of answering your question. If it was actually like a physical piece of equipment, stir paddles, you have to have stir paddles if you're above seven barrels. Yeah. Gotcha. There's no other way to do it. Cause you're like, literally like I, I tried stirring for like five minutes on this 10 barrel match ton that we were on like last weekend, like five, 10 minutes, dude, I was, I was toast. That's like me. Uh, when I got my Corona mill, right. When I started brewing and I had just the handle on it. Right. And I had like 10, 15 pounds of rice. And I was like, I want to brew my first beer. This is awesome, man. And then about 20 minutes later, I was like, this is freaking awful i need a <laughs> drill man this is terrible <laughs> oh my god right yeah and it's like i think one of the things that you know you feel this artisanal element you know but you'll realize how what scale really looks like you know the moment yeah. you lift your 40th 40 pound bag into a mash tun you're like man i need an auger man i need a mill 
man, I need a great grist case. Man, you know, screw a grist case. Screw a grist case. I'm gonna get a silo, dude. <laughs> Cause like I, I apprenticed at Ghostfish, and they have a really nice mill room. But you've, I, I don't know if it's changed since I've been there. But you got to manually walk those bags up the stairs, and you got to pour them in there, and you got to adjust the mill settings for each specific grain that goes in there. And I have a lot of respect for that. But I also like, for me, I don't got that kind of energy. Like I yeah, want to, yeah. you know, I mean, if I can make somebody else younger than me do it, fine by me. But I don't know how long they're going to want to do that either if I don't want to do it. Yeah. So. <laughs> You've uh, you've been uh, a great advocate for the Zero Tolerance Club, and for people that aren't aware, there's a lot of the the conversation with our Zero Tolerance uh, Gluten Free Homebrew Club takes place on our Facebook page. Um, and you've also been a speaker at HomebrewCon. You've yep. written a bunch of articles. You've been on. I'm looking at your website, uh, Beersmith, a couple times. Right? I don't know how you yep. worked that out. That's pretty awesome. So. Yep. Um, and then also HomebrewCon 2021 is coming up here. Um, so tell us about like your vision for like HomebrewCon 2021. I know you wanted to make that yeah. special. Well, it was a, you know, I think the people that missed out on the last two HomebrewCons, you know, we were just starting the club at that point in 2018. And, you know, we had a couple people show up. Obviously, Joe, our founder, we had Ed there. Obviously, my wife is probably more influential in my beer flavors than anything else. So she was, of course, there. My, you know, my stepdad was there. He lives in Orcas Island in Washington. So he was able to drive down to Portland, which was really cool. And then um, even uh, Ben Accord uh, from Evasion showed up for one night. And nice. the amount of the, the lead up to HomebrewCon, I think, was one of the most special elements of it, right? Because I brewed four special beers specifically just for my homebrew con seminar. Um, but in addition to that, we had seven other beers in kegs. So we had like 11 flavors at club night and that was with three people. Right. And now our club has gone from like a hundred members to 700, 900, uh, 997 as of today. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's fucking amazing, dude. And that's uh that's what it is. It's like it's not just people that are curious about it, it's or people that are forced to live the life. It's family members and homebrewers that want to make something special for their relative and uh that's something that moves me usually is uh that that this is what beer is. Uh beer is liquid love and it's liquid culture and you know to be able to participate in something that's so much larger than yourself and it has such an incredible impact on people's lives. That is why I do it. You know, that's why I get up <laughs> earlier than I do for my day job for this stuff, you know, is it's a true passion. And I believe that this is my life's work, you know, and it's, it's incredible to be here, you know, with you on this show. It really yeah. is. No. I really appreciate all that you've done taking over for Joe and taking the club in, 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 the, the direction that you have, I, I think that it's, it's not better. It's, it's you. It's, it doesn't, there's, is no, there is no comparison because it's a different person and it's their vision. And it's so great uh, to be sharing all of this stuff with, with everybody, you know? You know what? That is a perfect segue to my last question for you, Bob. <laughs> so thank you so much for that. And we appreciate you having on here. Thank, thank you so much for the kind words. So 
for the gluten-free brewers in, in you know out on youtube or just as part of the club what what kind of a advice would you give to a gluten-free brewer that's maybe they're starting out and you know it's intimidating gluten-free brewing in, in itself is intimidating like what's your advice on where to start and even for the experienced gluten-free home brewer that wants to go to the next level what kind of advice would you have for them true yeah i mean two 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 different uh frames of reference that you look at right i would definitely say that for anybody that um is just starting out it's your first or second time like it's if you can if you don't die when you drink it you made a good beer <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I my first brew ever uh looked more akin to snot. If I'm being honest with you, because I didn't have a lot of the resources when I was first starting out. I was like, okay, well, what's available at the grocery store? What's available that I can find on Amazon? Right? So I was pulling stuff from everywhere. I think in my first batch I had like a half a pound of molasses, a pound of sorghum syrup, a pound of brown rice syrup, and then like 5 pounds of like quick oats. And that was the worst idea I ever had. <laughs> and then I also, that was the funny thing is I was using someone else's equipment and he was like, oh yeah, I've got these uh, flaked corn. Uh, yeah, just throwing it after the boil, fuck it. <laughs> and it was just like, it looked like uh, in, the, in the little carboy, it was all just like swimming with goop and particles. And then there was like this little like liquid at the top. And that was like, that was, that was the liquid that we had in there. And I was like, I don't, I don't think this is right. And then I smelled it and I was like, dump no, it. No. Yeah, that, that was so, but then I was like, you know, it was, I was right before a music festival. I was like, I got to make something quick. Right. And so I did like a take on the uh, ghost fish uh, grapefruit. I didn't, you know, use grapefruit peel or whatever. And I had whatever hops the guy had at his house. I just bought like six pounds of sorghum and some sugar and some stuff. Got it canned up, it passed. People are like, hey, this is gluten-free? Wow, I would have never known. And I was like, yeah, this isn't good, but I <laughs> drink it. <laughs> so you really got to start somewhere. You know, you got to have a lesson learned, you know, and it's better to make something that you can at least drink than the way that I did it, which is something that I, I, would, never, I would never even give to my worst enemies. Um, and so, yeah, you start there and you go, oh, okay, well, I like this even if it's one thing. I liked how there were bubbles. Okay. Maybe yeah. you don't have that. Maybe you're like, I like how it was golden. That was, that's at least it wasn't, you know, purple, you know? Okay, cool. Well, that's good. That's a start. Get, get going, you know, start doing it. You know, it's not, anybody that's getting into this space, I really don't want you to be confused and think that you're going to somehow be saving money by making your own beer. In fact, you will probably end up spending far more money just making the beer than you ever would just going out yes. and buying a four pack. <laughs> <laughs> so be prepared that you're going to go, wow, I never would have thought that it costs that much to make beer. And I've even had some of the our comments on my articles are like kind of funny, you know, cause it's a lot of barley brewers on places like homebrew, homebrewtalk.com and whatnot. Um, and they go, well, with prices like that, I would never brew. And I was like, you know, no one asked you to this party, Karen. Um, but at the same time, it's like, you gotta, like I said, you gotta start somewhere and you're going to figure out the thing that's at your rice price point that you like the flavor of. And, you know, you always just, I don't think I've made the same beer twice. And, you know, that's an interesting segue back to our IPA. As many times as I've tried to make the same recipe of our IPA, I sadly can say that I, it's 
it's we've had to do different things each time and it's it's a lot of times it's been based on the brew house like our first brew house had a horrible 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 watering element that literally only hit like a third of the mash from the where the water was outflowing and i was like what what <laughs> and so that was that was really fun to go from one recipe having like a pretty good extraction to the next recipe having a whole 10 gravity points lower right so that's like a you know a, that's the difference between a 1050 and a 1040 right and you're and, and in one case you're adding 100 pounds of sugar back to get back to the abv that you need that you would have gotten just from boiling it wow um, and so yeah i mean like that, that that was just the first system the second system we ended up being able to use 300 pounds less grain what? you know you go from having a one style of a margin to now a completely different, you're like, whoa, we just gained like 10 points of margin just on this recipe, you know? And so you're like, well, how do we do that every time? Yeah. Cause that's a huge, um, that's a huge amount of money when you start factoring in how yeah. much grain that is. Right. Yeah. I mean, most home brewers won't get it because they're not spending these prices, but like, you know, I'm buying thousands of pounds of grain at a time and I'm able to get bulk pricing and even still, that's four times the cost of bulk barley. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so you look at 600 pounds of millet is over is a, yeah, it's over $600 when you consider, you know, milling as well as freight. Right. So, I mean, to save $600 in a recipe is crazy. Um, and we're on the pathway to hopefully in, by the end of 2020, our IPA will be a hundred percent all grain, 7% IPA. Nice. So nice. it's something that we set upon ourselves because, you know, lo and behold, SoCal is a really weirdly competitive market because of the whole Clarity Firm market that's been built out by Clarity uh, by um, White Labs having their headquarters in San Diego, which is one of the main reasons why I want to have such a, sh a massive showing for the club at HomebrewCon 2021 because it will be in White Labs' backyard. And if you can have a massive outpouring and you can do – Every single style of beer, I know that we probably won't get around to it because there's a lot of style of beer, but if you can show that you can do it and you can do it gluten-free without needing barley, wheat, or rye, you give so much more credibility because it starts there, right? I mean, Chris White, he's been on Beersmith countless times, right? And, you know, it was, it was him being on the show and listening to him talk about Clarity Firm that lit a fire inside of me. And I'm not going to let someone be a false prophet out here trying to say that they're the Messiah, that their, that their beer, that their beer chemical can turn barley into a substance that is not barley. It's, they cannot transubstantiate barley into a gluten-free substance. And therefore, it is a false platform to be standing on. I reached out to White Labs myself about two years into homebrewing when I could make good warts consistently. And I said, hey, I'm happy to give you guys however much wort you need to prop up your yeast so that you can release at least one yeast that is gluten-free. And their response is very telling, which was, why would we do that when we already have Clarity Firm? Wow, that was powerful. And thank you so much for that, Bob. And I totally agree 100% with you. And um, I want to thank you for joining today <laughs> and doing this. This is awesome. Fire and brimstone, baby. That was like powerful, <laughs> man. Wow. That was like that was like peaking right at the end, man. That was epic. Yeah. Man. A crescendo. That's what's and, up. I need the fans wanting more. 
<laughs> I just want to say one last thing before we go. Just remember, no barley, no wheat, no rye, no problem. Ayo. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> Thanks, Kale.